0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to be speaking to Dr. Carl Griffin today about his book titled The Politics of Hunger, Protest, Poverty, and Policy in England from 1750 to 1840, am out in 2022 from Manchester University Press, this book offers the first systematic analysis of the idea of hunger and how this was something that was experienced during this time period, feared during this time period, um, and influenced politics and policy in a whole bunch of really interesting ways. So this book has quite a lot to tell us um, about social policy, about kind of discourses um, and a lot of other things about England in this time so Carl I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book
2: uh, hi Miranda um, my book is uh, as with so many uh, academic books is something of a long-standing project and a labor of labor of love um, I am a historical geographer. Um, so I'm kind of interested in both uh, time and space in the past Um, and my particular kind of interests from the start of my career have been um, focused on rural England from roughly the beginning of the 18th century through to the middle of the 19th century and most of my work I suppose the stuff I'm best known for is work on uh, popular protest and popular politics and it was through that that work and particular particularly kind of work on food rights, that I kind of came to realise that there was a huge kind of gap in the historiography on uh hunger. So that's to say there's a huge amount of kind of work that's been written about uh famine in an English context, um with the idea that uh it's something that Really stops being an issue um, by the early 17th century. Um, and also um, an interesting kind of body of work that focuses on the uh the later kind of nineteenth century, um, where hunger supposedly had reappeared, had been, um, had been reimagined, had been rediscovered as a um, as a social problem. But in this kind of intervening period, there was this kind of huge gap in our knowledge. Um, where, and I think it'd be fair to say, um, historical scholars had assumed that hunger simply wasn't an issue in any kind of major way um the the focus on famine um which has been such a kind of dominant kind of feature in so much kind of work in the social sciences and more kind of socially kind of inflected humanities that um had rather kind of overshadowed, had you know, maybe completely kind of blocked out any, um, any light for thinking about kind of more kind of nuanced understandings and appreciations for the way in which hunger actually could kind have of persisted as something which was kind of a very kind of lived issue and a major social problem for the 18th and early 19th century. So the politics of hunger is this attempt then to fill this gap in our knowledge of the 18th and early 19th century in relation to this more kind of nuanced understanding of hunger something which was kind of a lived reality for many people and also something which was kind of a critical driver of social policy and social commentary in the period mm.
1: Thank you for introducing um, sort of the book's origins and kind of the, the gap it's looking at. I think that's really quite interesting and hope hopefully we'll get to kind of do, you know, a bit of a highlights tour, I suppose, of the book, get a sense of the book. Um, And although the title does sort of imply that it starts from 1750, as you've sort of implied already, um, this idea of hunger having an impact on society uh, has much older origins, um, but also kind of some immediate ones. So I was wondering if I could ask you a bit about um, what's in the book, and of course, you've already spoken is in your work more generally, about the idea of food riots, and particularly, the food riots in seven in the seventeen forties. What was so significant about these, particularly when it comes to understanding hunger?
2: So, there is a really, really long history of um, of what what I broadly understood of uh, understood as uh, acts of crowd interventions around issues to do with food supply and food quality, going back into the into um, the medieval period. But it's not really until 1740 that we see what can be kind of uh, understood of as a genuinely national wave of riots that encompass large parts of the country and draw in uh, uh, rapidly developing urban centers in the um, in the north and the Midlands. Into yeah, into food riots for the uh, for the first time. So there's this really kind of interesting kind of yeah diffusion of riots from one place to another, uh, which is something of a factor in kind of earlier kind of food rights but the fact that it's this kind of national kind of diffusion this kind of critical kind of national picture drawing in kind of new and emerging kind of settlements um so it's really really interesting and it's really really important it's something that's not been subject to a huge amount of study there's some kind of a really really important work by um by the american historian john boast Um, and the work of Adrian adrian randall has been kind of important in starting to develop a deeper sense as to what was going on in 1740 but i mean i see it as absolutely kind of the pivotal kind of moment at which we can begin to kind of understand how the politics of um um, the politics of hunger, as expressed around kind of issues of food supply, um, uh, as expressed around kind of issues of, uh, around the issues of um, the marketing and regulation, the marketing of um, food become this kind of way in which we can understand kind of broader kind of popular mentalities and kind of broader kind of attitudes uh, as to kind of, you know, how... Um, the poorer members of society they said to kind of work for a living uh, had kind of this kind of interesting kind of relationship with food and how that kind of fed into their broader kind of conception of their role in politics in popular politics so it kind of touches upon so many kind of critical critical kind of dynamics for the period
1: and one thing i found really interesting um reading the book is kind of as you've just um given us a good overview of the 1740s riots are really quite impactful right nothing on that kind of scale has really been seen before and shows that this is clearly um a very salient issue despite the fact that as you mentioned in your first answer um the idea of hunger still being a problem for england um was kind of reported at least by elites that like oh that's not a problem anymore um and yet, as you demonstrate, it's not like the 1740s are kind of this big last gasp of the issue. In fact, food riots and protests um, continue throughout the period into the early 1800s, but not quite in the same ways, or at least not entirely in the same ways. So can you maybe take us through how food riots and protests changed from the sort of 1740s as the starting point through the rest of that century?
2: Yeah, absolutely. mean so- so the wave of kind of riots in the 1740s kind of set up a lot of the uh, protest modes, the protest practices, which uh, become kind of defining features of kind of yeah, food rights throughout the, throughout the 18th century. So um, interventions around uh, attempts to kind of export food from the community, that exports doesn't necessarily mean kind of overseas. Invariably, kind of means going into kind of yeah, major kind of urban markets, either kind of nearby or at a or at a distance. Interventions in marketplaces around um, um, either what could perceive to be kind of unfair marketing practices, um, unfair kind of manipulation of foodstuffs or um, more kind of broadly around what were thought to be kind of yeah, um, unfair uh, prices. So not kind of high prices per se, but kind of prices which um, were the result of yeah, manipulation. Um, so seventeen forties kind of sets that, sets that instead, and a lot of that, you know, is is evident in the uh, the waves of food riots which seen in the in 1756 1757 1766 um, to extend to slightly kind of less kind of intense wave of, of kind of riots in 1772 focused like slightly more in the east of england rather than being truly national um, up until what is absolutely kind of peak food rioting um, in 1795. Um, and in 1795, there are some fundamental differences. So there's kind of um, ways of food writing kind of mid-century broadly kind of follow the model of, of the 1740s. But 1790s kind of step it up in terms of the overall level of intensity and, um, so um more places are drawn into to food writing than ever before um something i've been looking at in um in some sort of the work i've been doing actually subsequent to finishing um the politics of hunger um shown that more rural communities were drawn into to this wave of food rioting in the 1790s than had been the case before as well um but it's important to kind of state that what makes the 1790s different what makes them distinctive is that the major wave of food writing in 1795 and it, it kind of goes on into to early 1796 as well is it's kind of happening against the background of um a heavily kind of militarized landscape so um Britain is obviously at, um, at war in, um, in continental Europe. It's kind of a very large standing, um, very large mobilised kind of army, not just fighting in Europe, but also um, in, um, um, at home as well. Uh, an army that's there both for training purposes, um, but also to try and keep, um, keep internal, internal order. And that's kind of necessary because of the broader kind of politics of the 1790s. So um, there is the um, the rise of you know of, um, of um, a French-inspired kind of revolutionary politics um, with kind of a, an intensity that hadn't been seen uh, in the uh, the preceding decades in the late 70 and um, in the late um, the late 18th century. Um, And this kind of feeds into a paranoia uh, in government circles and amongst kind of the the landed elite that, you know, that um, mass rioting, not just in the towns, but even in the countryside, um, is something that potentially could turn into or bleed into England's revolutionary moment, that, you know, the... The events that have been seen in Paris could also be seen in um, in um, in London. Um, so the reaction to to food rioting, a lot of locales, not all, um, but lots in 1790, is a much more kind of yeah, bitter, a much more repressive, much more kind of political um, um, an act to to try and stop rioting to stop rioting feeding and bleeding into um to an insurrectionary moment um um so whereas kind of in the past some Individuals, a small number of individuals might be um, made an example of uh, for being kind of ringleaders in food rights. Most individuals, even if they're arrested, were never even brought to trial or if they were brought to trial, were, were, um, were given kind of, yeah, a nominal kind of sentence or were, were kind of, yeah, were kind of acquitted. Um, in the 1790s that's very different it's a much more bitter response particularly where those involved in rioting were actually kind of mobilized soldiers Um, um, so um, there's a wave in the spring of 1795 of uh, food riots, which are led by or otherwise are are have strong involvement from um from members of the militia members of the militia who are stationed away from home um are put up in often pretty kind of poor temporary barracks often with kind of your fairly kind of meager um supplies of food often of fairly kind of poor quality so the whole kind of politics um Around kind of the food supply in 1795, after um, some pretty kind of poor kind of harvests, um, and this kind of issue of having to you know to to feed this kind of huge mobilized army on the continent, it brings every kind of working person into the um, into the um, into the, um, into, the um, into the politics of the um, of the moment. So, yeah, the responses, you yeah, of court marshals, of, yeah, of militiamen serving militiamen, um, um, state funded trials of kind of others who, yeah, are thought to be kind of, yeah, active kind of ringleaders in kind of major kind of urban, insur- um, insurrectionary like food riots. So that moment is very, very different. Um... So, when again there's kind of another major kind of yeah food crisis in 1800, again after kind of a yeah, really really kind of hard winter, after kind of yeah problematic kind of harvests, after kind of issues with uh, with um, with the integration of yeah of kind of food networks, yeah you know, Britain being at at war in continental, continental Europe meant that many of the Many of the routes, uh, particularly coming out of the um, coming out of the Baltic, that once might have been kind of relied upon to uh, to kind of supplement kind of Britain's own uh, Britain's own kind of agrarian kind of breadbasket, um, were no longer either kind of possible or no longer reliable. So at 1800 and the food crisis then is potentially kind of a moment which is even more serious than 1795. But the response um, by um, by the genuinely kind of hungry populace is slightly different to 1795. So there is still a significant kind of wave of food rioting. But there's also... Um, a much, much more significant resort to what I call the tools of covert protest, particularly in the countryside. So uh, the sending of threatening letters to those who were, say, withholding corn, um, threats made to, say, millers who were, you know, thought to be um, uh, manipulating um uh manipulating the uh, the flour supply um threats made to, to bakers and others and also um the use of incendiarism the use of kind of arson to attack uh of those individuals who are thought to be um, leading to the suffering of the, the suffering of the poor, so whether that was kind of farmers, millers, bakers, um, or particularly kind of those who were involved in the relief of the poor through the poor relief system of the um, of the time. So, eighteen hundred looks really quite different to anything that's gone before. So, yes, there were food riots, significant numbers of food riots, certain kind of. Certain kind of locales, particularly kind of in the the late summer of eighteen hundred, were you know were impacted by really really kind of intensive food rioting, kind of spilling out of spilling out of London, um, but nowhere near the same number of kind of places or the same number of kind of riots occurred in eighteen hundred. So there was this kind of much more significant resort to the tools of terror, if you like, for people to to protest their lot. <laughs>
1: That's absolutely fascinating to kind of hear that progression um, over time and how these different sort of seemingly outside factors nevertheless very much play into it. Um, What do you think it tells us that there is such a persistence of claims about hunger and starvation from the 1740s to the early 1800s?
2: Yeah, I think it, it speaks to the fact that Even though um, Britain is this kind of uh, rapidly industrializing country with supposedly um, sophisticated models of kind of market integration with this um, developed kind of transport, Model which kind of allowed for the easy movement of uh, the easy movement of goods, not least through yeah the through the building of turnpike roads and the canal system, uh, um, a system which was kind of well integrated as well into international markets. Um, that despite all of that, that when things went wrong. When there was significant kind of harvest failure, and particularly when there was kind of harvest failure um, accompanied by broader kind of political problems or manipulations in kind of yeah in kind of food markets, that um, it was very very uh, it was very very kind of easy for those who were just about kind of getting by. Um, those who were you know not much above the breadline to quickly kind of fall into an acute um a grinding poverty and a genuine hunger so going from being poor but being able to to survive to not knowing where literally the next food would come from And I think it's those kind of moments of crisis that perhaps haven't been as well kind of understood previously as they might have been, and the fact that during these kind of moments of crisis, it wasn't simply kind of individuals, um, you know, reflexively protesting their lot, reflexively protesting because things were not as they would like them, things were not as they had been, but also because against received historical and popular understandings, that you know that there was absolutely genuine hunger. There were not famines in England in the eighteenth century, but there were famine like conditions. And it really wouldn't have taken a great deal, uh, particularly in 1766 uh, which was a absolutely kind of dreadful dreadful year an absolutely kind of grinding biting crisis for crisis to have been made famine um if there hadn't been kind of significant kind of interventions in terms of say kind of charitable support if there hadn't been the important kind of blanket of support from the um uh, the poor law as well um and I think it's that, that's the thing that makes this kind of really interesting and really, really important is that just because famine isn't there doesn't mean that, you know, famine-like conditions hadn't been present and doesn't mean that, you know, the spectre of famine had altogether kind of, yeah, disappeared from, from England. It absolutely hadn't in the 18th century. It was, you know, it was a very, very real threat And being hungry and not knowing where your next food is going to come from is something that, um, you know, made um, food, this critical political problem, um, made food something that turned individuals who otherwise got about their kind of, yeah, daily lives in relatively kind of quiet and quiescent ways into, um, into protesters. Mm.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: At EverNorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI—it's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's Wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. I think this was such a key point of the book um, that eliminating famine doesn't mean eliminating hunger, but also that we now know that there were no famines in this period if we actually put ourselves back into those shoes and go, okay, well, there historically have been famines relatively recently uh, and now things look quite bad. How do we know that there won't be? Right. Um, And I think that this fear of famine and fear of hunger is a really important factor um, to bring into this conversation because it's not just about kind of, well, the numbers show that there's X amount of this and X amount of that. Um, You also have to believe it. So I'm really kind of glad you've made that point because it, I think, brings a lot of nuance in and very helpful to eliminate what's actually happening happening here. Um, and I kind of want to think about sort of this idea of the perception, as you say, how political this became and how the protests um, shift and the public policy response shifts. And I kind of want to get into a bit more of that public policy side of it, because you've mentioned sort of the poor law. There's a lot of changes around that in this time. So can you tell us about kind of one of the Uh, one of the important shifts in this period around policy related to hunger which is scales Um, I admit I wasn't particularly expecting that I found this fascinating so how and why do scales represent an important shift in thinking about the poor law
2: yeah so in the the early 1790s this year you know, there's this kind of yeah, slowly kind of developing kind of crisis around around kind of food and food food supply and it absolutely yeah becomes this kind of critical kind of yeah unyielding kind of issue in 1795 but as early as 1792 there's kind of evidence to suggest that that local authorities that local groups are kind of magistrates and landowners uh genuinely or worried about um both the already significantly kind of rising cost of poor relief. So the impact of yeah of of war as ever as we're experiencing now is inflation. Um inflation particularly kind of yeah and most severely kind of impacted in um um in terms of kind of yeah food prices again as we're seeing as we're seeing now um and what could be done to genuinely avert crisis so there's kind of properly kind of humanitarian kind of you yeah, um without wanting to use a um um an anachronism probably kind of humanitarian kind of your yeah, motives at, at play here um, But also, kind of, what mechanisms can be kind of developed to kind of systematically um, support the 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 needy, the genuine? As the magistrates would see it, and um, make sure that um, public funds, let's say, local public funds, support the the. the, uh, the poor relief monies could be kind of targeted at those who were kind of in greatest um, in greatest need and those who were thought to be kind of, yeah, most worthy of, yeah, of public public support. So there are these kind of interesting kind of early kind of precedents in the, the opening years, of the 1790s and 1795, um, uh, as often been, been told by social historians, um, a group of magistrates get together uh, in small Berkshire hamlet of, um, of Spenhamland. It's not even a parish, it's a yeah, little kind of hamlet in the broader parish of, of Spen, and um, devise this systematic scale for the relief of the, the poor, um, t- t- tagging... Um, the amount of kind of relief kind of necessary for the support of a family to the the price of bread bread being you know, the central kind of arbiter of you know, of, of how kind of a family will feel the effects of inflation most of you a know, kind of a, a poor laboring family's income would be spent on bread far more than on on rent or, or anything else so bread is kind of a useful kind of mechanism to to organize this organize this organize this by so on top of you know on top of uh, um a family's wages how much in how much kind of income support for these scales are genuinely kind of an income support policy how much support are they going to kind of need to get by when bread is a so many kind of yeah, so many kind of shillings and pence uh, a gallon loaf um so the intentions are kind of interesting and they're and they're complex and from this kind of seminal kind of meeting which has been kind of held up by kind of so many historians just the, as the kind of the, the critical the pivotal moment lots of these other scales kind of um appear in in other kind of um in other kind of communities particularly in the starting in the southern english cornlands so in places like you kind know, of hampshire dorset Berkshire into Sussex into 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 Kent, um, and then kind of spreading into kind of other other kind of counties too, not least in the um in East Anglia and, and even to the Midlands and the and the north. Um and these scales are something that outlive the moment of crisis for which they're kind of initially kind of designed, for which they initially kind of invented, and instead almost become kind of embedded within um within local relief policies within local relief networks it's important so you know, to to state that whilst the the poor laws at this kind of moment in time um operate within kind of a national kind of um, a national kind of legal kind of framework Policy is something which is often actually kind of yeah, devised um, at the local level. There's, you know, a great degree of kind of yeah, innovation which occurs either at the district level or even the the level of the parish, the parish being the smallest kind of unit at which kind of yeah um, m- monies for, for poor relief are kind of gathered under which relief is is given given out. Um, so these scales become become embedded, they become um, embedded because they serve kind of broader kind of purposes. So beyond kind of the moment of crisis, um, it quite quickly becomes kind of clear that, um, well, Britain's still at war anyway. There's still kind of this problem of kind of, yeah, of kind of chronic uh, chronic inflation. Real wages, particularly for, for rural workers um, throughout the war years, decline so despite that wages are increasing um the cost of cost of goods cost of living is increasing um it's increasing um at a, an even faster rate again striking parallels to to the early 21st century here um, and keeping kind of scales on is kind of a way of kind of responding to that uh, crisis if you like in the the cost of living going to use a slight kind of anachronism from 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 today um, but it's also something which can be easily kind of manipulated as well so in rural communities in particular uh, farmers are the major employers most people are who need to kind of labor for living are working on the land they're working for farmers they're you know they're engaged as kind of yeah, as kind of wage laborers um, uh, farmers are kind of therefore kind of able to use the um uh, the poor relief system, the scale system that's been developed as a way of actually kind of spreading their costs onto the broader community of um, of ratepayers. So um rather than say increasing wages, farmers are able to actually kind of yeah you know, uh, keep wages down, they're able to kind of yeah, you know, to, to repress them and ultimately even to to reduce them after the war as well because if you have these scales in place which guarantee effectively kind of minimum kind of incomes um for yeah for for poor working families then um what's the yeah, what's the stop farmers from just kind of cutting wages because the other kind of ratepayers in the community will also have to kind of chip in to to help but uh, to help support them through the through the poor laws so it becomes something which is, which becomes this kind of major kind of battleground um, in kind of social policy social policy circles. It's something which transcends its initial intentions. Um, it's certainly something which kind of leaves behind any kind of kind of humanitarian kind of impulse of the early the early scales, and instead becomes this kind of system by which everyone who works for a living particularly in the countryside is effectively pauperized because wages are so terribly kind of um um, suppressed repressed um depressed rather sorry that um everyone has to kind of turn to the parish has to turn to the poor law to get to get to get support um so um this is something which is kind of bitterly, kind of yeah, resented by other kind of yeah ratepayers in the community, by by other kind of individuals who aren't involved directly in farming but are now having to kind of shoulder a broader a broader cost. It's quite understandably resented by um, many kind of labouring families as well, because their labour is something no longer adequate to the support of their of their families. And instead they have to kind of turn to the parish for you know for for support for kind of income income support through these scale scale systems um, and these scale systems are never you know absolutely kind of you know, universally applied there are always kind of you know, wider kind of wider kind of stipulations um, so there's lots of kind of evidence in parish vestry books that yeah sorts of kind of you you know, um, Divisive kind of measures are kind of yeah, implemented and um, and invented. So, for instance, refusing kind of your yeah, relief to to families if they if they have a dog, a dog. Either been good of evidence that you know where you've got, you're able to support a dog, you should be able to feed yourselves, or evidence that you go out, go out poaching. Therefore, you know you're engaged in in Ill- Ill- illegality, you're engaged in in criminal acts, um, refusing to to relieve people unless they come to come to church. So it becomes this kind of tool of um, of social control as well.
1: <coughs> Thank you for um explaining that I think the idea of thinking about the parish level is really key and I'm glad you highlighted that because um, otherwise it can be quite confusing kind of well what's national what's local and how do different things change Um, but that lens is quite crucial and one that you use the sources really effectively I thought in the book to kind of draw out um, not just about the kind of policies you've talked about so far, but also about um, literally the cover of the book um, has a cartoon uh, of the workhouse, which is, quite possibly the most common thing people think about um, because of Charles Dickens. Um, And I was really interested in the book that you bring the idea of the workhouse and the policy of the workhouse into discussions around biopolitical um, issues and biopolitical work. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about kind of the workhouse in the context you've described and how it comes in with biopolitics um and the kind of aims of the workhouse in that context
2: yeah so um when the war in europe ends uh 1814 to 1815 and the mobilized kind of army returns returns home those kind of individuals uh need to go back to their communities a lot of them uh, returning to uh, to the to the fields and the farms in which they were they were brought up. Um, they're looking they're looking for work at the same time because there's no longer this kind of huge demand to kind of feed this mobilized army, um, and also because you yeah, international markets reopen, the cost of the cost of goods, um, particularly the cost of yeah goods at the farm gate. Um, very, very sharply declines. Um so farmers having had it really very, very good indeed during the war years, now um have to kind of find ways of yeah of reducing their reducing their costs. Uh this is at the same time as to say as you the size of the labor market is significantly swollen by these returning soldiers and this leads to kind of yeah, a really really kind of massive crisis and one of the deepest uh, not just recessions but genuine depressions in the English economy. so from 1815 unemployment soars in the country particularly but also in the also in the also in the uh, in, um, in industrial centers too. Um, some rural communities quite quickly um, um, are suffering from meaningful kind of unemployment rates around twenty percent. Also, significant kind of rises in underemployment as as, um, as well. And um, because of the the scale kind of system that had been kind of um, had been embedded, particularly in rural communities, in the seventeen nineties, um, these same communities through the poor law now having to support um individuals for whom there is no work or not enough work so the cost of poor law now absolutely spikes again so this kind of significant kind of spike in the 1790s which kind of yeah which kind of falls off a little kind of your yeah, plateaus through the through the rest of the war years now massively increases again to, to kind of levels never which had never been never been seen before um and this you know further kind of politicizes the the, the poor law the poor law system M- money kind of poor relief is given ever more kind of grindingly there are ever more kind of you know, inventions and social policy kind of innovations around how um, around costs can be can be reduced so particularly through kind of the hiring of, yeah, of paid, of actually salaried poor law workers, assistant overseers. So b- before that, I mean, all of the, the labour in terms of administering the poor law tended to be done, um, tended to be done, you know, for for, for nothing on a rotation basis amongst the, the, rate, the rate payers. So these innovations around, yeah, bringing paid, um, paid overseers who can, yeah, look into claimants' backgrounds, look into their look into their kind of family situation, look into their look into their income, look into their kind of their habits and their morals even. Um, um, there are these kind of yeah you know, uh, innovations around introductions of things called um select vestries, these small cabals who um are thought to be better kind of able to um, cut down on any kind of abuses at the level of the parish because they would be much um, these small kind of this small kind of cabal of often kind of the larger ratepayers would be kind of less kind of swayed by the um, by the pleas and the demands of um, of um, of claimants who might be kind of you know, might be kind of related or kind of closer in status to some of the some of the um, the lesser rate payers. So th- all of these kind of innovations um, are, are brought in and, and ultimately, you know, have some kind of effect. But because the cost of kind of poor relief and this crisis around kind of un and underemployment um, is something that you know that, that kind of rumbles on through the, the later kind of yeah eighteen tens and into the 18, 1820s, um, everything flares up um, in 1830 with the largest s- series of rural protests that, um, that England had seen, at least since the, the pe- Peasants' Revolt in 1381. Um, so these are kind of protests essentially kind of around the, the standard of living of the, of the rural poor um, around, you know, Stingy kind of poor relief payments around kind of um, around kind of you poverty and pauperizing levels of wages around their poor treatment by employers and by poor law officials around um, declining employment employment opportunities because the introduction of um, of machinery particularly kind of threshing machines which robbed workers of um, of precious and rare wintertime employment when the fields were frozen over. and this is you know another kind of you know um insurrectionary moment another kind of moment which is kind of feared to be potentially um potentially kind of revolutionary there'd been you know a a revolution in france in the summer of 1830 kind of revolutions elsewhere in continental europe and again um there was this kind of fear that the the rise the revolt of the countryside would be um Something which would spill over into kind of the the urban reform crisis of the time, and would lead to you know um, a revolutionary kind of situation in in England. It, it didn't, but the response of the state again was a bitter repression, both of many of the um, many of those who'd been most kind of obviously kind of um, towing a particular kind of political line during the um, during the protest during the swing riots. Of eighteen thirty, and the other kind of response is by um, launching the first kind of major um, social policy inquiry um, in the history of kind of the history of kind of England, and this significant kind of moments in kind of social policy innovation into the Poor Laws and what could be what could be what could be done. So there is this belief amongst the the um the Whig elite that you know the um, abuse of the poor laws lay at the heart of all of um all of the problems that um by making laborers kind of pauperized they've also made them indolent and um and needy um, that they've kind of reduced their kind of, yeah, incentive and will to work and support, them, support themselves. Um, and what's needed um, is this kind of full-scale kind of reform which makes living on the parish, which makes living off kind of poorly something which is not desirable. Now, of course, it wasn't desirable in, in any way at all. Um, but there was this kind of, yeah, this kind of, Major kind of political kind of belief, particularly amongst the uh, amongst kind of the, uh, the utilitarians, the Whigs, you know, drawing upon the arguments of Jeremy Bentham and um, and, um, and, and and Thomas Malthus, that um, a r- major reform of the poor laws was necessary. And what's what's kind of proposed out of this kind of yeah this kind of this major kind of inquiry, which is kind of rigged to produce the result which is wanted, is that. Um, the relief of the poor on the parish is something which should be kind of abolished instead. Parishes should be put together in unions at the centre of which is the workhouse and that um, that all individuals, if they want to receive a relief, should go and be relieved in the workhouse, that their kind of independence is taken away from them. Now, this is a system, this new poor law that comes in in 1834 and it kind of builds upon kind of Examples and experiments with kind of workhouses in 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 other locations, which had been been ongoing really from the from the early seventeenth century. Um, but the workhouse here was a system which was being imposed upon all communities, and there was supposed to be no kind of yeah, no exceptions. You know, so the the young, the old. Those who weren't able to support themselves and their families through work all had to go into the workhouse without without exception. There were kind of yeah moments when kind of the system kind of broke down, was so totally overwhelmed that some relief outside the workhouse was was available. But this is kind of essentially kind of a a biopolitical kind of system. It doesn't see the um, it doesn't see the individual it doesn't see their situation it doesn't look at their context it's not concerned with them and their life rather it's concerned with you know with the level of the population it's concerned with thinking about the poor on mass and thinking about how they rather than um, any poor individuals can be um, supported at the cheapest possible cheapest possible rate um, and you yeah, the system is this kind of the yeah, the construction of these um, incredibly austere centralized workhouses which divide individuals up by um by um by sex and by by age so separate children's wards are taken away from the parents um, um men and women are separated to there are kind of separate kind of wards for the for the elderly and everyone who is able to work in the workhouse is put to work everyone is dressed in the same the same kind of uniform their individuality is you know, is stripped from them um, their kind of sense of kind of your know, of kind of your know, self worth is yeah you know, is stripped from them too it is meant to be a deterrent system it is meant to kind of you know, offer kind of a level of minimum support so there are all sorts of interesting kind of experiments kind of early on thinking about yeah you know, what is you know, the minimum amount of food which is necessary to support a you know a a human body um so this is kind of going on around the same time as the uh, the invention of you yeah, the discovery of the um of the calorie um and yeah all sorts of kind of innovations in kind of yeah, in kind of human biology that's kind of a that's kind of a science um so these kind of workhouses are reducing individuals who, through no fault of their own, find themselves in this kind of destitute kind of position down to the level of, the level of very, very kind of simply, very, very crudely of yeah, um, of bare life to draw on the work of george Agamben. And, um, and not too surprisingly, this is kind of a system which is universally kind of hated. It's universally hated in the countryside, um because you know agricultural kind of wages remain very 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 kind of low it's very very difficult for families to kind of yeah, support themselves without some support or without turning to to crime to support themselves and their families it's hated in um in the towns where there are much kind of broader kind of communities of kind of great players um, many of whom are, you know, not that kind of far, kind of removed from, you know, from the bottom rung of society themselves. You know, individuals who might be doing um, doing okay, but you know, have just kind of lifted themselves up from kind of, you know, from kind of destitution, and are only kind of one step away from destitution, and and who see kind of, yeah, the workhouse system as this kind of dreadful kind of imposition upon upon their community, who see it as this kind of act of state centralisation of taking kind of power away from kind of local communities in determining how they should kind of care for their care for their own. And it is this going kind to of be this kind of first act of state centralisation around kind of around social policy. It's very, very quickly followed by the invention of kind of a county kind of police forces which would gain a response to the to the swing insurrection of, of eighteen thirty. But the workhouse is something which is incredibly powerful um, and um, bitterly, bitterly kind of resisted. But you know, it's it's important because you know it uses hunger; it turns kind of hunger into a tool of government. Mm.
1: Very important, um, and I really appreciated. Both, obviously, that explanation, um, but also that you kind of, given that you've spoken about kind of looking at people at the level of population rather than individual, looking at the cheapest way, stripping individuality and things like that, um, as I was reading that section, I started to make some sort of some connections to other parts of British history at this particular time especially around race and empire um, and then turned the page and found that uh, you have done that as well and done it properly in the book so I was wondering if you could kind of expand this conversation this answer you've just given us into the wider context and conversation of race and empire in this time period in England.
2: Yeah so so I I argue in the the politics of hunger that the the early nineteenth century, in particular, although you know this this kind of some of these kind of ideas are kind of emergent kind of in the, the end of the eighteenth century too. It's kind of a period in which the the rural poor, in particular, although this applies in some context to some kind of urban urban industrial workers too, are increasingly seen not as heroic not as kind of you know um, serving the interests of the nation by their kind of you know irreversible backbreaking work in the fields you know providing for the providing for the populace but it's seen as a you know as a problem there are too many of them they are ill-educated um They are needy um that they yeah they always kind of you yeah, need kind of your yeah, support from the support from the poor laws that um um as kind of your yeah, reverend kind of mouth as kind of you yeah, famously saw it as well that the systems in which they kind of yeah live um encourage them to early marriage and to to have you yeah, to have kind of children at an earlier age. I mean the, the actual kind of realities behind that are far more are far more complex than Malthus' kind of Math's initial kind of argument in his SM population. Um, and it's through all of these kind of yeah these kind of emergent kind of emergent kind of discourses about the rural poor in particular that they're increasingly seen as kind of yeah a different type of a different type of people. They're increasingly Spoke of, written of in broadly kind of racial terms, um, and this is something which kind of feeds into the the languages and the 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 techniques of governance and the um, the 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 tools of yeah of kind of yeah of science, the emergent social sciences around um, around kind of colonial kind of rule. Else, elsewhere and a lot of this kind of language a lot of these techniques are brought back to to use to kind of describe the the poor of the poor of england so lots of comparisons are kind of made between how they are and how um displaced kind of aboriginal peoples are say in say in um, say in australia lots of the comparisons are made between the situation the state of the english rural laborer and um and those um enslaved or once enslaved kind of peoples in the um, in the english caribbean as well and the british caribbean so there's this kind of a yeah, conflation of lots of kind of, yeah, lots of kind of, um, lots of emergent kind of ideas um, from you know from from metropole and from and from the colony, which are then kind be applied back onto thinking about you know thinking about the the labour. So this kind of this individual, this group who have been seen as a problem are now seen as not just kind of a problem, but altogether apart they are kind of writ in racial terms they are kind of considered to be you know to be a different type of people they are considered to be you know um um um, um in many kind of instances you know uh, uh and also get the kind of different race from um from their social their social betters mm.
1: very interesting link to make there so thank you for explaining it um There obviously have been some hints already that there very well might be things about this history that are relevant today um, with the anachronisms of the cost of living crisis, the impact of war on inflation and food prices. Um, But maybe you could tell us uh, sort of more directly, how does this history of kind of hunger, particularly in England in a specific time period, uh, matter today?
2: That's a really, really interesting interesting set of questions. I mean, when I started writing the book it was never my kind of intention to kind of you know to to write it to something which directly kind of spoke to kind of the other crises of the 21st century but you know from the first moment i you know metaphorically picked up my pen it just became absolutely kind of clear that whilst you know the the broader kind of situations and contexts of the 18th early 19th century quite different from the early 20th, 21st century of course they are that there are so many striking kind of striking kind of parallels striking parallels around the assumption then um and now that you know that, that hunger was something that simply was no longer an issue that you know that um that you know, that you know, for instance, you know, in the early twenty first century, that you know, that the 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 welfare state and kind of, and you know, and kind of low level kind of um, low level kind of charity, was you know, was making sure that everyone had everything that they might reasonably kind of need to you yeah, to get by and kind of participate as active active citizens. And that's you know, remarkably kind of similar to the uh, to the to the set of kind of beliefs around hunger no longer being no longer being a problem um, that were true in the 18th and early early nineteenth century um so I think you know there are these kind of striking um striking kind of overlaps in terms of in terms of discourse and it reminds us of course that you know that that um that hunger is something that you know that is only ever kind of a few steps away um, from you know, from large sections of the of the um, of the population, and when that's something as well that is kind of exacerbated by um, a cost of living crisis, by kind of rampant inflation in a period of and a period of wartime, and a period of you know, of political kind of instability a lot of you know the a lot of the um the years that i've spoken to kind of earlier on so 1795 1830 you know we're also kind of moments of kind of political uncertainty moments of political kind of crisis and yeah that's I mean, it's absolutely kind of been true say of you know, of um 2021 and 2022 in in the UK and arguably in kind of you know, um other parts of yeah you know, other parts of the um other parts of the the world uh, the world too certainly so true of you know, the the uh you know, the states in 2021 certainly true of yeah you know, large parts of kind of continental continental europe let alone thinking about the you know the the unfurling kind of your know, internal kind of um crises and their kind of repressions in um in um, in china so there are parallels there parallels there too and that matters because you know thinking about these histories then speaks directly to to where we are today and serve as kind of a a salutary warning to to those who um try to govern over us those who you know those who we um either kind of vote into, um, into kind of office or who, or who kind of assume kind of positions of power without any kind of democratic authority or mandate, that um, they need to be very, very careful in thinking about how they respond in these moments of crisis to issues of hunger, to the very, very real biting and grinding reality of hunger, to make sure that they don't forget about what happened in the late 18th and early 19th century mm-hmm. thinking about the good intentions initially of kind of scale systems about how they became manipulated to kind of yeah, to create a greater problem of pauperization and um um how they kind of demoralized a whole kind of class of class of workers how the crises were also kind of used to kind of justify the dreaded um workhouse system which proved to be kind of so kind of catastrophic um and you lives on in you the collective and kind of cultural cultural memory of the um of the nation mm-hmm. as you as this kind of symbol of kind of an unfeeling of a grinding governance that says um, uh, interested only in the bottom line interested only in the level of population rather than interested in the individual
1: now that you've taken us through the history, um, the present and how it relates, as my last question, I was wondering if we could peek into the future a little bit. Um, is there anything that you're working on now that this project is done or you've got your eye on to work on next that you want to give the audience a sort of brief sneak peek into?
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm I'm really lucky this, um, this year that I've been um, – awarded a fellowship from the the levy hume trust to um um further some of my ongoing work on uh the history of squatting on um um in in rural england and the edge of yeah the edge of um, the edge of towns and thinking about how um in this this same time period, the 18th and early 19th century, that it was kind of possible for the landless poor, who otherwise had to kind of rely on yeah their labour, had to kind of rely on poor relief. How they were kind of able, in some locations, in some kind of situations, to kind of yeah, eke out an existence by you know by taking a small bit of land from from common land from from yeah from manorial wastes. To, yeah, to erect a cottage and maybe create a small garden and find some kind of little bit of comfort and little bit of kind of independence um yeah from these yeah from these kind of otherwise kind of rather kind of oppressive systems of agrarian agrarian capitalism so that's that's kind of the major thing that i'm working on i've still got yeah ongoing kind of interest and in thinking about kind of yeah Um, about kind of your food rights so just had a a paper out in the historical journal looking at looking at rural food rights which hadn't been systematically studied before I'm working more kind of generally as well on kind of your histories of of the enclosure of um of once common land so thinking about kind of issues of the privatization the making private of of land and particularly how that kind of played out in in england in um in a colonial context so how of again the languages of of um of um of yeah of kind of empire, the languages particularly for the settler colonialism were kind of used to kind of yeah justify Um, the final kind of moments of of, um, enclosure of commons and uh, wastelands in England.
1: Fascinating. Well, best of luck with those projects. Um, And while you are off working on them, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Politics of Hunger, Protest, Poverty and Policy in England from 1750 to 1840, out from Manchester University Press. Carl, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. It's
2: been my absolute pleasure, Miranda. Thank you.